Welcome to Call Your Next Witness, the Wade Clark Mulcahy podcast, um, available on Spotify or Apple or wherever you found us today. Um, my name is Brian Gibbons. Uh, with me today, as always, is my co-host, Georgia Coates. Georgia, how are you this fine morning? I'm doing great, and this is going to be a good one. I can feel it. Yeah, so usually what we do on this podcast is we strive to interview people who are either insurance claim professionals, expert witnesses, adversaries, uh, people that we don't know all that well a lot of the time. And today we are going to be interviewing two people that we know way too well already, uh, that being uh, Bob Cosgrove and Matt Kerr of Wade Clark Mulcahy. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Thanks, Georgia. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, so the reason we are having Matt and Bob on today, aside from the fact that they are both charming and delightful individuals that we would always love to talk to in this setting, uh, Bob and Matt just completed uh, an in-person, real-live jury trial in Pennsylvania, and uh, got a great result just a couple of days ago as we were recording, and we thought that um, our listenership, whether claim professionals, young attorneys, et cetera, would, would really want to hear about just how that went, uh, some of the logistics, um, what, what went as expected, what didn't go as expected. And so that's why we're having uh, Matt and Bob on today. And Matt, I am going to start with you here. So, Matt, you've, you've been with WCM for how long now? Oh, let's see. I started here as a law clerk in May of 2015, I believe. And then I started as an associate in 2016. And all I can say, Brian, in respect of that is he was no Georgia as a law clerk. <laughs> no one ever is. No one ever is. I, I think by context, that means I wasn't the best law clerk. <laughs> oh. Yep. oh. Flattering your podcast hosts will get you everywhere, especially if it's Georgia. Um, so, Matt, the, in terms of jury trial experience and preparing for jury trials, because those are two different things, going into this one, where where did you fit? How many trials had you prepared for? How many had you been involved in once they actually got started? Sure. So th this was the first trial that we uh, that I personally prepared for at all. Uh, we, we had a couple other cases previously that we thought may go, uh, but those ended up being resolved in mediation. Uh, but th this was definitely a, a bit of a unique experience uh, as uh, this case involved a trifurcation, which was a bifurcation of the bifurcation. So it, getting ready for that uh, may not be uh, the most general experience, but it was very unique experience here. Okay, now I've got to stop you there. Um, what the hell does trifurcation mean? Like what? Well, just generally, what kind I'll, of case I'll, was this? I'll jump, yeah, I'll jump in on this one. Yeah, and to be fair, trifurcation is one that we owe to Jim Scott, uh, who came up with the term down in the Philly office. Okay, so here's the case in a nutshell for the listeners. Uh, what we have is we've gotten assaulted at a bar that occurred back in 2013. A man by the name of Hakeem Scott was standing in the vestibule of a bodega-type facility. Uh, a, an intoxicated patron was being escorted from the self-serve bar. 
And on the way out, he decided to stab a man by the name of David Ahn, who owned the deli, named Murano Deli, and also stabbed uh, Hakeem Scott. Hakeem Scott then commenced a lawsuit against um, the Murano Deli. When the Murano Deli put the claim into its insurance company, they disclaimed coverage because the policy did not have assault and battery coverage. It had an exclusion for that. It had dram shop coverage, but not assault and battery coverage. So when the disclaimer came in, the bar then sued the insurance company, the assailant, and our client, the retail broker, all in the same lawsuit in a joinder complaint. When that happened, we moved to bifurcate the, that is separate out, the um, E&O claim against the broker and the coverage case against the insurance company and transfer to the Commerce Court program, which should cover cases like this. That occurred back in 2015. That application was denied. We filed an application in 2017 to just bifurcate us out and let us go in the major jury program, which is where most regular cases in Philadelphia go. That application was denied. The case took a long time to get to trial because one, there was a delay while Pablo Chen, the assailant, was being prosecuted by the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. Then one of the insurance companies of one of the named defendants declared for bankruptcy, and that created an automatic stay. And then there was COVID. So the case finally came up for trial in January of this year. And when we had a conference with the judge, we told the judge that you really can't try a coverage E&O case with an underlying assault case where the jury knows there's no insurance coverage from the very beginning. And that application was denied. So we were then assigned to trial uh, before one judge in Philadelphia starting trial on May 7th, something like that. And Matt was not involved in that trial at all. And basically what happened was we go to pick a jury in person on this case and we tell the judge's law clerks, because in Philly, the law clerks are involved in jury selection, that the case should be bifurcated. Um, the plaintiff made that application, the underlying plaintiff's counsel. Um, that application was denied. So we picked a jury for the first case, entirely picked a jury fully masked in jury protocols, COVID protocols in Philadelphia on May 7th, thereabouts. We come back to court on the morning of Monday, May 10th. And this is after we've prepped for the trial to deal with the liability case and the damages case. I've cross-examined the doctor for the plaintiff on videotape for trial, which is how doctors testify in Philadelphia. We walk in for opening statements at 10 o'clock in the morning. And the judge takes the bench and he says, you know what, Cosgrove, I don't want to deal with your 30 motion eliminate. I've heard there's a lot of appellate issues on this case. You're out of here. I'm bifurcating you. See ya. And kicks me out of the courtroom. Which is what had been requested back in 2015. And denied twice. And this judge did not have jurisdiction to overturn his concurrent jurisdiction judges. But nevertheless, that's what happened. So we leave the courtroom, you know, grumble, mumble, grumble, grumble, grumble. And uh, the next day I called the court reporter and said, hey, can I get a copy of what the judge did? Because it's so weird the way he did it. I need a copy. And she says, you want a copy of everything? I said, what do you mean everything? She said, well, after you uh, left, they came back about an hour later and put the settlement on the record. I said, Okay. And so I get the settlement and it turns out that after we were kicked out, the bar owner and the, um, the victim of the crime uh, did a $900,000 consent judgment. And um, we were then bifurcated limbo land. About a week later, we get a notice from the court reattaching us for trial on a second case to start jury selection the Friday before Memorial Day. This was <sighs> no notice. 
This is with uh, limited courthouses, and we're told we're now starting the case the Friday before Memorial Day. We're picking and starting the following week on this what's supposed to be an eight day trial. Uh, Matt drew the short straw. People had vacations planned, and uh, Matt uh, volunteered, a term used loosely, to uh, step <laughs> forward and assist with the trial. Matt, Matt was informed that he was volunteering. Yes, Matt was <laughs> I was also on vacation when I got this noticed. So. <laughs> so Matt volunteered to come in for the trial. And we then picked a second jury on the same case, albeit on a, on a more narrow scale, the E&O case and the reasonableness of the underlying settlement. We were going to litigate that issue before a different judge's law clerk and a different jury. We pick a jury. We come back for opening statements the Tuesday after Memorial Day, prepared for the trial. At that point, the judge did his trifurcation. He said, you know what? It's not fair to the plaintiff. They don't have an expert to deal with the um, reasonableness of the settlement. And that's really a complicated issue. So I am going to bifurcate out that issue, the damages issue, the liability issue, and the reasonableness of the underlying settlement and make that the subject of a third trial. And now you're going to go ahead and start this trial uh, today on the E&O claim. Oh, and by the way, uh, just by way of context, I'm letting the plaintiff file an amended theory of the complaint, an amended complaint right now as we speak. Uh, that's asserting to our mind a new theory of the case. And so basically we tried the case with open pleadings on a new complaint. Uh, and by what point of context, the attorney trying the case for the plaintiff or the deli at this point was the attorney who had been representing the victim of the crime in the trial two weeks beforehand. He took over the case to prosecute it. So we had a different plaintiff's attorney with a new complaint that the judge allowed with a new theory of the case with a different case than we had prepared to try just the morning of the trial. So trifurcation is a unique Philadelphia term <laughs> dealing with wow. this case that no one has ever had, uh, to my mind, an experience with where in the course of a month, the case was split into three different parts. Wait, so that's so a long answer to your question, Brian. That's what trifurcation is. So, so, Bob, you're saying this isn't the typical trial experience? <laughs> I don't believe you. This is entirely atypical in every sense of the term. This is judicial um, economy at, at its best. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's hard to understand. Um, I mean, I had done some of the walkthroughs with the judges, the presiding judge on behalf of the defense bar. I knew what the protocols were. Trials are backed up um, for the better part of 15, 16 months. There are courts, trials booked through the end of the year. People can't get juries. And I was lucky enough to get to pick two COVID juries in the course of three weeks. Um, so on basically what was three different cases. When all wow. So it was um, a very unusual experience. What's crazy about that, Bob, is I was checking the clock and I think it took you about eight minutes to go through what trifurcation is. And I don't think you could have done it any more smoothly than you did. Like, that's just what a mess. Um, it was a mess, and um, we lost every single one of our 30 motions eliminated that we filed. We lost the opposition to the plaintiffs filing the motion to amend the complaint. We basically lost every single ruling uh, that we could have possibly lost in this case um, up until the jury verdict. Which was an outright defense verdict, no need for the damages, reasonableness of the damages trial? Correct. The way the court broke it down, we basically had special interrogatories, I think is the way to think of it. What happened was the initial complaint had alleged it was a broker E&O claim saying the broker erred because he did not get dram shop coverage. Now, that was false. 
we sent what's called the Dragonetti letter, which is basically a hammer letter way back in 2015, saying the policy has dram shop coverage, it just doesn't have assault and battery coverage. The two are not necessarily provided as a matter of course. Um, when they amended their complaint, they asserted what was properly called the negligent misrepresentation theory. And the claim here they made, in part because they didn't have an expert to support the E&O claim, they changed their theory and said it should be negligent misrepresentation. Now, because the negligence claim, the court could have just said, is there a duty? Did the defendant breach the duty? Some, or was the defendant negligent? Was the negligence a cause in fact? But we convinced the judge to offer four specific questions. And the first question was, did Charlie Kim, that was our client, uh, make a material misrepresentation to the deli when the deli applied for the 2012-2013 policy year? It was an occurrence-based policy, so the 12-13 year was the appropriate year. Okay. If the answer was yes, the second question was, uh, did Charlie Kim make that representation with an intent um, to... Um, or, sorry, second question was, did Charlie Kim know or should he have known that the misrepresentation was false when made? Question three, did Charlie Kim, Kim if yes, did Charlie Kim make the misrepresentation with the intent to induce uh, David on to, to uh, act upon the representation or the misrepresentation? And question four, did David on justifiably, the deli, justifiably rely on the misrepresentation and suffer damages as a result? Those are the four questions the jury had to answer. So really more of a special interrogatory type thing. And the jury came back on the first question, was there a material misrepresentation by David Ahn or by Charlie Kim to David Ahn? And they answered eight to no, eight to zero, uh, but the answer was no. And that ended the case with the defense verdict. Wow. Um, well, first, congratulations. Uh, that's a great result that, you know, it's, it's like the old days when you were a prosecutor, when they just handed you a file that you had no idea what the hell was going on and said, try this. Uh, I, said, I said that to Matt repeatedly. I said that this is the the most uncertainty I'd had as a trial lawyer in the civil world um, ever. Um, and it reminded me of being a prosecutor because everything you were doing was tap dancing. You didn't know what people were going to say exactly because the depositions you had taken, the scripts you had were designed and questioned for a different case with a different theory. So what the witnesses were going to say at trial now were entirely different than what they were testifying to and had been asked about previously. So that made it a very interesting trial where you were basically making stuff up as you went along to adapt to the judge's rulings and to adapt uh, to, um, to the case. And I will say just, just by way of context, I know Philadelphia and Philadelphia judges get a, an unfair rap sometimes. Um, judge Erdos, who tried the case, um, well, I don't agree with his rulings. Uh, they were all against us. Uh, he did give everybody a fair chance to be heard. And in hindsight, he gave us uh, the best thing we could have asked for, which is, we think, we don't know this yet, but we think the absence of appellate issues for the plaintiff to complain about because the plaintiff won everything. So there's really nothing to complain about <laughs> in that sense. Well, I just knocked on wood on your behalf. Um, hopefully that turns out to be to be accurate. But with all the the motions in limine going against you, um, it sounds like the the appellate landscape, at least for the plaintiff, is is not not too optimistic. But putting that aside, and Bob, I'm going to come back to you in a minute. Uh, so Matt, keeping in mind that it sounds like this is a very unique case that that 
between the E&O aspect and the trifurcation, uh, if you can even call it that, I guess you can call it that, uh, it's a hard case to compare to what you would consider a normal first trial during COVID as opposed to a normal first trial not during COVID. Sure. But let me just ask you generally, um, in terms of the, the trial itself, what was – what went as you expected? What didn't go as you expected in, in terms of the, you know, the COVID stuff in general? Sure. So uh, let, let me back up a little bit there because I need to talk about my preparation for it to give the proper context here. Thanks. But uh, So we were picking a jury on Friday, May 28th, uh, going along one theory of the case, as Bob explained earlier, that uh, the complaint only alleged a material misrepresentation with respect to dram shop cover. And during the jury selection on May 28th at 12.14 in the afternoon, plaintiff filed a motion to amend their complaint to, uh, to assert a new claim. And so we had to spend that entire weekend preparing for basically what was two separate trials. A, what was alleged in the current operative pleading, and B, what was alleged in the new pleading that had not yet been ruled on, that had no depositions or discovery taken with respect to it. So preparing for it in three days over a weekend on an entirely new theory of the case was certainly unique. And I do not believe that that is indicative of normal trial experience. But Generally with, not. Yes. Uh, with, with respect to your question uh, concerning what did I expect uh, concerning COVID for it, I, I think the most unusual experience was you had to rely on body language of the jurors, but both during uh, the jury selection and to see what sort of arguments uh, the, juror, the jurors were responding favorably to. Because everyone was wearing a mask, so you can't see their expression. So were they crossing their arms? Were they nodding their heads? Stuff like that. And I, I spent a fair amount of time trying to read the tea leaves, which is a useless task, uh, to, to see how the jurors were responding uh, to some of our arguments. And I couldn't help but think the entire time that this would be much easier if we were not wearing masks. And you had Interesting. to the whole time, too? I'm sorry, what was that? You had to wear yours the whole time as well? Uh, the entire time. Uh, we had to wear masks. You had to be six feet away uh, from everyone. And so the, jur the jurors were actually set up where the gallery uh, usually is and not in the uh, jury box because they had to be six feet away from each other. You were allowed to take your mask down to show your face to the jury during jury selection to see if they recognized you by face. And the witnesses were allowed to do that to you. So you couldn't speak, but you were allowed to pull your mask down basically promenade in front of the jury, show them your face, and then put your mask back up and begin asking questions. Ah, like a pageant contestant. Exactly. <laughs> I even had my heels up. <laughs> so that's that's interesting, though, in, um, in terms of reading body language, Matt. You know, like a lot of times during jury selection, half of what I'm looking for is, you know, maybe a smirk from a juror or a, a wry smile that might signal to me Either I'm buying what you're selling or I'm not, and you were deprived of that completely. So you're looking for crossed arms and, you know, maybe a nod. But what el what else can you look for besides that? So I I think that's part of the problem is that a, a, a lot of the way uh, you know a normal humans uh, intuition works is they're looking at a ton of different information, body language, smirks, all of that, and it, it it's all synthesized into intuition. And so here, uh, a lot of what you normally rely on is just not there. And so it, it was mostly body language for us. And you can still tell whether someone's paying attention to your argument or not. 
it, it, you know, if someone is, you know, not looking at, uh, you know, the screen when we're presenting an exhibit or not paying attention during uh, some sort of cross-examination, maybe that argument isn't resonating. So it, you just have to, uh, you know, emphasize more the body language than anything else because you can't rely on anything else. Wow. Um, now, in terms of logistics, because I'm uh, pretty ignorant in Philly protocols in general, Pennsylvania, I'm not admitted there. Is there any pre-screening of the jurors by the, the clerks or by the court in general, or are you guys doing all of it? It's just, it's a mix. Um, so let's compare, let's do a compare and contrast to New York, Brian and Georgia, because you guys know that well and well and dearly. So in New York, all the voir dire is done by the attorneys themselves in some side room, unless you're in criminal court where the judge has to get involved and it's all on the record. But in civil court, you just voir dire on your own. Um, you get the questionnaires and you can take as long as you want. You can preview your case as much as you want. Um, and uh, that's sort of the reality. Philly is different in general, and it's different specifically now um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of which is that there was a ruling by the, I think it was Superior Court a year ago, saying judges had to be more involved in jury selection or present in some way, shape or form, or it violated constitutional rights and therefore the whole jury was null and void. Uh, there was some case law on that, some back and forth. So the way it worked was we received the questionnaires from the jury staff in the central jury room. That's where we did the board here. We did the central jury room with 30 pound, 30 jurors. So it could be spaced out properly, I assume? Right, they were all six feet apart. Uh, judge Andrews, the presiding judge, had a stick, a six foot stick. He would walk around <laughs> and separate the chairs. I'm not exaggerating that, wow. I saw him do it. That's what he would do. So leaving room uh, for the Holy Spirit between all the jurors? Exactly, it was like an old fashioned, uh, you know, the uh, uh, diviner in the middle on a, a date or something like that. <laughs> uh, but in any event, he, um, we got the questionnaires, we then went outside, and, and Philly doesn't have a standard protocol, okay? So we went outside then with the questionnaires, and uh, we were allowed to ask the jury specific questions based upon the questionnaires, and questions the judge specifically authorized. So there's a list of questions we proposed to the judge. When the plaintiff and I couldn't agree, the plaintiff, although he's got a case coming up in Queens, he's going to get his head handed to him in Queens, uh, he had never tried a case in New York, and he was not big on previewing. So the jury had no idea what the case was about walking into it, except there was a dispute between an insurance agent or a deli uh, and it's his insurance agent. Um, so there was no previewing, and the judge crossed out many questions and said, literally crossed them out and said, you can't answer this, you can't ask this, you can ask these eight questions. Wow. And the way it worked then was uh, we asked some of the basic questions. People raised their hands if they had hardships or conflicts or whatever the case might be in the open session. They went to a back room with all the windows open so that um, the air could come in. That was the ventilation. Uh, we had the city sta city noise, you know, right outside, taxi cabs, street cabs, you know, all that kind of stuff right outside the courthouse because uh, the courthouse is City Hall in Philadelphia. And um, then we basically did the individual voir dire where plaintiff would go, then I would go, and then we'd switch. I would ask the next witness one of the times. So the witness would come into the room. They'd sit down. Uh, the um, sports this staff- is one, at, one at a time, by the way, time. right? Okay. The court staff would ask initial questions, some basic stuff, do some voir dire, deal with the hardship stuff up front, and then make decisions on whether to excuse the person or not. Then the plaintiff could ask follow-up questions or questions that were approved on their sheet. 
we could do the same on our end. Then the witness would leave or the juror would leave. Uh, the court staff would, would sterilize the chair and put the person, the new person would come in, new juror would come and they put him in the second chair. So the first wow. fly off with the sanitizing. And then if the plaintiff had gone first last time, I would go first next time and then back and forth until we war geared all 30 jurors. Wait, uh, now, aside from the sanitizing, is that how it normally occurs in Philadelphia? The board yeah, process? It depends on the judge. I mean, you have on the case I picked, well, on the jury I picked three weeks beforehand, the judge's law clerks didn't ask any questions. They left it completely to the attorneys. So it's a very individualistic thing, depending on the judge's protocols. Though I will note both judges crossed out questions that the attorneys were going to ask, um, which I'd never seen that before in Pennsylvania in any courthouse, let alone in Philadelphia. Is it so you have less of a reason to excuse a juror so that you just pick a jury faster because there's less jurors available? Or did you find that there were less jurors available? People just didn't respond to summonses because they didn't want to sit in a room with a mask on for weeks at a time. What I was told from the meetings that I was at is that uh, they found that the number of jurors responding was consistent with the pre-pandemic lists. The oh, big difference wow. was is that um, you only got a pool, usually a 40. We only had 30 because of Memorial Day, mm-hmm. um, but the pool was 40. If you blew through your 40, you were done. You go to the back of the line, you're done. There was no extra additional jury panel coming in for you. So if you blew through your 40, that was it. Now what that meant was how you dealt with hardships might be a little bit different than you might in another universe. And the judge limited your preps. So on wow. the first trial, um, he gave us, uh, we had six, we had a panel of 40, and we got six each, six for the plaintiff, and then six for the defendants, which again made no sense because the one defendant was suing me, so our interests were not aligned at all. No. So we, had, we had three each, plaintiff got six. On the second trial, we had four each. Plaintiff had four, and we had four, and we literally we're down to juror number 30 who became our alternate. Mm. So we had that is fascinating. So, you know, to if any of our listeners are fairly, you know, green claim professionals or attorneys, you know, usually at least in New York and presumably in Philadelphia under normal circumstances, you'd get a jury pool. And if you have to pick six jurors and two alternates, let's say, and you go through your 30 jurors and you have four jurors, well, now you have your four jurors sworn and you get another panel of jurors to fill out the rest of your of your jury. But, Bob, what you're saying is you were told in advance that you're not going to have that chance. If you don't get your jury from these 30, you go to the back of the line. Yeah, because you you, you can spend days picking a jury on a trial. Uh, three yeah. four days. I think my last trial we spent like four days just picking a jury. I hear it sounds like you spent four, 40 minutes. Well, we had, we had, um, and there are two things, one of which is a typical Philadelphia civil jury or Pennsylvania civil jury is 12 jurors and two alternates. The, 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 here, the limitation was we were, we were asked to consent to only eight jurors. And by consent, I mean told, <laughs> effectively. <laughs> it was eight jurors and one alternate. So they limited the number of jurors by, you know, five or six jurors. That, that made it easier. We started jury selection at uh, 10 o'clock. We were told at 1.30 or 2 o'clock that the court was shutting down for Memorial Day at 3, so we better get finished quickly. <laughs> wow. And so we did. We got it done at, at about 3.15, uh, and that was the jury selection. So if you tried a case in federal court, it was probably more similar to that than it was to a typical New York jury selection. 
Although, you know, we get through a bit more questioning than a federal juror would, or federal federal judge would. Well, yeah, because in, in New York, jury selection is essentially, you know, I always compare it to open mic night, where the attorneys are basically allowed to say anything they want. And unless someone really crosses a line, will get away with saying anything they want. Whereas, interesting, in, so in Philadelphia, the first judge, the law clerks didn't really get involved, but in the second one that actually went, the judge was literally crossing out questions and and dictating the terms of engagement, so to speak. To be fair, in the first case, the judge's law clerks and the judge did cross out questions as well. They crossed out questions in both of them. It's just in the first jury selection, the law clerks didn't ask any questions. In the second one, they did. Uh, they were more involved. I think they were more excited to be there because they hadn't been in court in over a year as well. So they were excited to be in court and ask the questions and, and you know, really be involved in the process. Did the jurors seem more excited than regular jurors? You know, are, are people that bored at home that they're like, yes, I get to serve on jury duty? Or is it the same level where they look at you of why, why have you done this to me? Even though it's not- <laughs> I can say we had one juror who was very excited to be on the jury. Of course, he was a plaintiff's lawyer from Delaware. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he wow. really tried. He could be fair and impartial. He was very clear about that. Sure. He, he, um, he tried. He was an officer of the court. He would never try and sway yeah. the jury to his favor, as he said. <laughs> but we got him on the balancing. If with the, the balancing was you know, both hands side by side, would you tilt a little bit one way? And he did say, I would tilt a little bit towards the plaintiff. So we got him on that. He was very excited. Other than that, no, they, were, they were all pretty fine. I mean, they were all they were all attentive. Um, you know, we had a pretty good um pool and, and a pretty good jury all in all um, on both the cases I have to say on both the juries that I picked they were both um, uh, pretty responsive and uh, pretty engaged for that matter now I have That's- another question about this uh, the procedures of trying a case during COVID because I have a trial I'm being assigned tomorrow and on the beautiful island of Staten um, sometime in August I'm very excited to be wearing a mask in 150 degree uh, weather and heat uh, trying a case in Staten Island but Part of the fun of trying a case is, is, is the drama you bring to it. The, and I'm sure, Bob, you know, with your acting background, your, your theater <laughs> background, uh, you kind of walk around, you, you, you have the jurors look at you when you don't want them to look at the witness, et cetera. Are you able to do that with these COVID rules in place? Well, or do you have to stand behind, you know, a plastic shielded box? I do want to say Bob got chastised for walking around too much because he kept leaving the microphone uh, at, at, at the seat. So the court reporter was uh, a little upset with Bob sometimes. Yes. Oh, and those court reporters can be very snippy if they can't hear you, if you talk too fast. Yeah. Well, that was actually so the way it worked is both judges had different protocols. We were in two different courtrooms. So the first courtroom was the big courtroom that they had set up for COVID. Only three courtrooms in Philly right now are operational in the COVID protocols. So there are three courtrooms. The first courtroom had plexiglass dividers. You weren't allowed to talk to your witness. You had to text them and things like that. Uh, If you wanted to talk to your witness, your client or your co-counsel, that judge was a bit more strict. The second judge, there weren't the plexiglass dividers. You could talk to your client. He let you move around a bit more. Um, That made things a little bit easier. What I will say is uh, mass correct. I did get yelled at by the reporter. Um, physically it's different because the way it worked was in Philly, they tape on the floor boxes on the floor and your chair is in the box. 
and that's where you're allowed or supposed to stay. You can't leave your box. Witness can, you can't, you're stuck in your box. The judge did let you use the podium uh, for, um, for openings and summations, but you were a good 20 feet away from the jury because the jury was in the gallery looking at you. You were sitting either facing the witness box or looking towards the gallery. So your back was to the judge at all times um, or your side was to the judge, which that's kind of weird. And your clients, in large part, were facing the jury directly. So normally, you know, your client would be sitting there and they'd be sitting next to you and you could look to the right, look to the left. Here, the clients on both sides were actually looking directly at the jury. So it did make it difficult. Um, the court reporter was mic'd. So if you, she couldn't hear the mic, she couldn't hear you. That's how she was getting the feed. Um, so that's why the mics became important, not because you couldn't project through the mask. Uh, I recommend a mask that has double straps that go around your head, Georgia, for the trial. Don't go with the mask that's just around your ears. It's much easier to talk for a trial if you have the double bands that go around the entire head. The mask doesn't move up and down as much, uh, and therefore you're not um, fiddling with it the whole day. Oh, good, good fashion tip, Bob. It's more about practicality. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure it's more fashionable, but it's definitely more fashionable. <laughs> Well, you know, when you think about what suit you have to wear in front of a jury, and now you have to think about what kind of mask you put on. Was there a kind of um, a rule as to what kind of mask you could use? No, you 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 could use whatever mask you wanted. Um, um, that was up to you. I know there are attorneys in in Philadelphia who are buying clear masks for their for their witnesses and their clients to testify. Candidly, I think that might be kind of scary, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. It's just teeth coming out of people. That seems kind of weird. <laughs> you know, uh, just, just thinking out loud here, I could almost see an attorney using as a tactic something that I've heard of uh, nurses doing, which is nurses that have to be fully masked in order to have some humanity with the patients that they're treating. They put a picture of themselves on a name tag on their their jacket or on their outfit so that the person they're talking to knows who they're talking to. You know, I wonder if uh, if there would be some rule prohibiting attorneys from doing that. Um, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud. It's the, definitely weird, but to George's point, it is difficult to be as dramatic um, because you can't make as much use of the papers, you can't roll your eyes. You know, we were sitting for a lot of the trial, so you weren't allowed to stand as much. I mean, I, I sort of made a make-believe podium by stacking boxes on top of each other so I could sort of stand up and be a bit more dramatic. Um, that's a judge's preference thing, if it lets you do that or not. Uh, but it is weird because you cannot do the same thing as you would do otherwise. You can't snarl and, you know, raise your hands and, and, and you know, flail your hands around. Although, you know, both myself and plaintiff's counsel, for that matter, who was a very experienced attorney, public defender, uh, by, uh, by prior avocation, uh, did we both did our we both did our share of that stuff? So I mean, you, you can make do, but it is it is different because you are more constrained. You have nice. to learn how to smile with your eyes. Right. <laughs> you have to smile. I, I think, and this should be the title of your podcast. I, I did joke with people, putting aside the trifurcation issues and so on. There was an element of all of this that was the old Ginger Rogers saying, which is backward and heels, right? Um, and there's a truth to that in this sense. It was a regular trial, except you were doing everything with additional degrees of complexity and, um, you know, and, and complication. And you know, that, that made it unique. By the time you got to summations, Bob, were you used to that? What I found, Brian, is like anything else, you know, 
for me personally, I always find jury selection the most nerve-wracking part of a trial. That to me, that's always that's always scared. When I was a DA, it always scared me the most. Once you get going, and um, you know, Matt could be a better judge of whether I, I, I was dramatic or not because he was there watching it. But once you get going, you just get going. You know, when you're crossing your the planet for five hours um, and catching the inconsistencies, you're just going. You, you're not thinking about, oh, I'm wearing a mask. Oh, I'm doing this. Oh, I'm doing that. It's just the adrenaline, that trial buzz that we all love and know kicks in and you're just doing it. And you're not thinking about, oh, I got a mask on. Oh, this is funky because you're just in the moment uh, in the way that only a trial uh, can uh, can make you in the moment. Now that makes sense. I've I've told people before, you know, in a, to make a baseball analogy, standing on deck is nerve wracking, but hitting is not. You know, by the time you're up at the plate, you're a little bit more relaxed. It's the anticipation, you know, which and it sounds like in this in this circumstance, other than having instead of having ten things to worry about in advance of trial or twenty seven based on the number of your motions in limine. You just had a few more things to worry about with regard to COVID protocols, but once once you got rolling, you were rolling. Were you allowed to speak to the jury after the verdict came in? No, they um, for two reasons. One of which our client was very, 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 very happy, so he wanted to uh, celebrate immediately. <laughs> a legal client, that is. Um, and uh, secondly, the judge didn't offer that to us. He basically took the, told the jury that he was taking him down the hallway and was going to excuse them, whatever. He didn't do the normal, if you want to congregate and talk to people, you can do that, which probably makes sense because in Philadelphia, the court is a tenant of the city of Philadelphia in City Hall. Mm-hmm. And the city of Philadelphia still has significant restrictions on group gatherings. So congregating a group of 10 people in the hallway might violate the, the protocol. So that was not offered to us. You know, some of the lawyers might want to talk to you afterwards. If you feel free to talk, then you're not obligated to. That did not happen in this case. Okay, Matt, I am going to put you on the spot with one just. I would characterize it as a pretty general question before we wrap this up. The I've always found that you, you know, preparing for trials or just writing reports for clients is one thing, but when you actually go through a trial from start to finish, you feel like you know so much more than you did at the beginning of it. What knowledge, wisdom, whatever you want to call it, do you feel you have now that you just did not have 10 days ago? Sure. So I I think that's a great question. I I think a lot of it comes down to uh, practical experience with what is exactly important at trial, right? uh, Because trials are a completely different beast. As, as Bob told me, once you do something in the trial, you can't do it again. You make a decision, you must go down that road, right? And so throughout the litigation process, whether it's oral arguments, depositions, you can sometimes go back and change some things. Trial is permanent. And it, it shows you exactly uh, what is important going through the litigation process. Here, maybe a little bit less so because of the irregularities, such as plaintiff amending their complaint on the morning of trial. Uh, but for the most part, it, it goes to show you that uh, during depositions, you can really narrow down on what is important. What exactly is plaintiff claiming? What are what are their factual supports for that legal claim? And and so, and so for me, just going, it, it just gave me a greater experience on uh, how you should properly uh, litigate before trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you never know what's going to be important 
you know, during the discovery process and then you get to trial, like, oh, my God, how did I not ask this question at the deposition? And then, you know, and then when the, the theory of liability changes at the zero hour, that's uh, that's another wrinkle, so to speak. Uh, but that's that's great stuff. I um, think Matt also learned to appreciate the uh, the physicality of trial. Yes, it, it, it was exhausting. And uh, I, I want to say thank you to uh, my parents for not getting too mad at me for not hanging out with them at all during the holiday weekend. Besides <laughs> lunch. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, well, it, it, it required a lot of preparation. So isn't it a terribly cold Memorial Day weekend? So Bob did you a favor with this trial? Yeah, th th thanks, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I do what I can, Matt. I do what I can. I appreciate that. <laughs> Great stuff, guys. Listen, I think um, this has been very illustrative to uh, to to our listeners, claim professionals who are just curious about the specifics, the logistics, the protocols of. Okay, so we have a trial coming up during COVID, but what exactly does that mean? What exactly is going to happen? And trifurcation aside, uh, I think uh, this this uh, this interview, this episode, has given people a little bit more insight as to what to expect, what not to expect. And this has been great stuff. I want to just thank you both for for your time, and again, congratulations on a a dynamite result uh for a trial that you were basically just thrown to the wolves with and um especially you matt that you just just found out about this case uh but great stuff guys thanks uh thanks for the content thanks for the info and congratulations thanks for having me on thanks for having us guys congratulations guys except before you leave i still want to know what a self-service bar inside a bodega looks like uh they have a um Self-serve counter. Uh-huh. Um, well, let's take it back. They have a bar. They have tables where you can order some food, some chicken wings and stuff like that. In fact, the assailant was known as chicken or pollo uh, mm -hmm. because he liked to order chicken wings. Uh, and um, you could order shots and hard liquors from the bar. But if you wanted to get a beer, you would go to the cases, open the case, get your beer. In this case, Corona was the beer of choice. Go pay for it at the register and then go sit back down at your table. Oh, I like this upscale bodega situation. <laughs> it did have tables, though. It did have tables and apparently okay. a couple of seats at the bar. Okay, but, because uh, yeah, there, there was a similar bar in the Bronx on Walton Avenue that we used to sometimes go to before uh, after work when there was a Yankee game, so the bars were too crowded. And this particular bodega, you could buy beers and drink them there, but by there... I mean, sitting on milk crates in the backyard. Very fancy. You know, yeah, very, very fancy. Fancy indeed. Um, <laughs> uh, but right. in any event. <laughs>